0: We've been implementing the routine measurement of testosterone every visit that our patient comes back for an LHRH shot. So essentially, every time the patient returns, we do a PSA level and a testosterone level. We've been doing this now for about two to three years. And this gives us an ability to not only monitor the PSA level, but also monitor the testosterone level to try and ensure as best as possible that the levels below 0.7 nanomolar. The biggest challenge to keep patients uh, in the best stratum of low testosterone is just simply the fact that we occasionally get breakthroughs and sometimes it gets hard to truly uh, interpret the data. Certainly, the routine incorporation of measuring testosterone has helped. Our awareness is higher and that's helped as well. And I think it's also important occasionally not to worry too much about one measurement. It should be a consistent uh, number of measurements. In which you may want to then act upon it.
1: I think we've become increasingly aware that the androgen receptor drives prostate cancer progression across its entire natural history, and that the lower you can drive levels of ligand, then the more durable control of disease is. And so we have for a long time measured testosterone levels on men on Um, uh, androgen deprivation therapy and make sure that it is well into the castrate levels. I think uh, it's not really that much of a challenge anymore. In the past, we had uh, issues with testosterone uh, assays being less reliable at some hospitals compared to others. I think a lot of that has now been resolved with uh, more consistent uh, radioamino assays that are available and hence our confidence around getting a testosterone level in the very low levels is uh, more robust. As we monitor patients who are on androgen androgen deprivation therapy with their levels of testosterone and their serum PSA levels, uh, we want to make sure that the therapy that they're on is driving their testosterone down as low as possible. If it is down well into the castrate levels, then we uh, monitor their PSA and look for signs of castration resistance. If, on the other hand, testosterone levels fail to suppress the levels where we want to see them, then we have to consider uh, changing their um, um, analog or antagonist therapy. And depending upon the state of disease that they're in, uh, perhaps adding an AR antagonist, or uh, even more recently, uh, steroidogenesis inhibitors like abiraterone. Normally, I would repeat it again to see if it's still um, elevated. I'd look at it in the context of what serum PSA is doing. Is it decreasing down into the undetectable levels, which is what we would expect? And if I'm concerned that he's having a suboptimal um, response, a suboptimal testosterone nader. then it depends upon his disease state if he's non-metastatic uh, then i may switch him from one lhrh analog to another i may add a non-steroidal antiandrogen like biclutamide if they're metastatic then now uh, abiraterone or zytiga is Im- approved in this space and i would add a steroidogenesis inhibitor to their lhrh analog therapy to achieve maximum testosterone suppression through inhibition of androgen production, both in the testicles as well as in the adrenal glands and within the uh, tumor compartment itself.
2: In BC, we have a long history of giving androgen deprivation therapy together with prostate cancer. And that started um, probably some 25, 30 years ago as we had long waiting lists for radiation, and then uh, in order to temporize that, we would put a patient on androgen deprivation therapy until they're actually ready or we are ready to give them radiation. So that has been a long history. And so we have learned and noticed that sometimes testosterone is not well suppressed. Sometimes it is. And, uh, and uh, we put together long time ago um, uh, a policy where we would measure testosterone together with PSA on each patient who is receiving androgen deprivation therapy, and then really adjust if this testosterone is not suppressed well. So it's a long history of BC on doing that. And so BC cancer ages in particular, all the patients who are seen for prostate cancer always have testosterone and PSA measured together. Now, some may argue that maybe this is a necessary expense, but I think it's, uh, you know, with a huge operation like this for us, we always felt that it's more important to have the information that is critical for patient um, for patients' outcomes and decision-making process actually available to us on a regular basis rather than kind of chase the results that you need in order to make clinical decision and you, have, you don't have them at a the time. So we have been doing that on a regular basis. And I think it's really kind of served us well over the period of last uh, couple of decades. So I am aware that uh, the uh, recent consensus, urological consensus in Canada is actually advocating for, for very low testosterone Probably what is the cut of probably less than 0.7. In our clinical practice, I use uh, even lower testosterone level than that, about 0.5. And if testosterone is not well suppressed, in my clinical practice, less than 0.5, then um, I would really act on that and uh, try to suppress testosterone further um, than just 0.5. As I mentioned, based on our clinical practice of measuring testosterone together with PSA, I don't think we have uh, many challenges in BC because of that policy, particularly the BC Cancer Agency. That may be a bit of a different case in um, practices around uh, BC, for example, urologist practices if the testosterone is not measured. But we do measure testosterone on a regular basis, and we actually act upon results that we receive on a regular basis. And so I would say um, most of radiation oncologists and myself as well, we do either change the preparation that patient is getting. So if somebody's on one uh, preparation of LHRH uh, agonist, we may switch them to a different one, or we may add casodix together with LHRH agonist. And if testosterone is really not suppressed well at all, for example, level is 1.7, 2, or 3, we would sometimes actually completely switch the preparation into LHRH antagonist. So uh, there's many different ways of how to do that. And I think... um, most of us are very comfortable with that. For us, it's particularly important to have very low testosterone levels uh, in the neoadjuvant setting, so prior to starting radiation. And we keep, for example, bicoludamide, we would keep that throughout neoadjuvant period and then during the radiation. And then after that, we may actually take them off because the definitive treatment after that is completed. So that was our usual policy. Uh, So, In our practice, and in my personal practice, I usually measure testosterone with uh, every PSA that we take and to measure the progress. And as I mentioned, we would either switch somebody to a different preparation of LHRH antagonist, or sometimes we have to switch them to agonists, or sometimes we just add the bicalutamide for the period of several months while on neoadjuvant androgen deprivation therapy prior to radiation and during the radiation treatment and then reassess the situation after that. So we do act upon that, and we think it's important. And it is important from our own data, and uh, Dr. Pickles has published a study from BC indicated that patients who have um, testosterone that is not well suppressed do worse. And so they have a shorter time to castrate-resistant prostate cancer. They also have worse uh, cause-specific survival and uh, worse progression-free survival. So I think the clinical outcomes are suggestive of um, uh, of need to actually intervene earlier rather than just uh, watch it and hope that testosterone will come down. If it's not coming down, I think we need to act on it. So breakthrough is really any testosterone for us that is more than 0.5. And I would say this is already way too high in our clinical practice, so we would intervene with either different preparation or adding calcidex.
3: Well, it's really uh, quite simple. Uh, The key thing is to measure testosterone periodically on patients. And uh, just like uh, we measure PSA about every three months in men on ADT, I just add testosterone. So it, it works out in most patients to a quarterly measurement of testosterone and management of the hormonal therapy according to the testosterone results. So in the majority of patients, the testosterone is suppressed below 0.7 by pretty much whatever LHRH agonist or antagonist they're on. But there's a subset, and it ranges between about 10 and close to 50%, depending on the series, who are not suppressed. And I use two successive testosterones above 0.7 as the threshold. So I don't act on the basis of a single blip, but if they have particularly two in a row or two out of three that are above 0.7, I think the data supports taking measures to reduce below 0.7, and that basically means switching. And if they're on an LHRH agonist, either switch to a different agonist or switch to an antagonist. If they still are not suppressed, then I think uh, based on the data published by Juan Maroti about 10 years ago, the next thing is to make sure they're on an antiandrogen. And there's some evidence to suggest that an antiandrogen with combined androgen blockade may provide comparable benefit to lowering the T below 0.7. The first thing I think is that a single value above 0.7 is probably not that significant, but successive values above 0.7 are definitely significant. And you know, the data we published from PR7 a few years ago was that in the patients who fail to suppress below 0.7 consistently, particularly in the first year, uh, this was associated with uh, worse prognosis in terms of time to progression and prostate cancer mortality. So uh, the point of ADT is to achieve castrate levels of testosterone. And I think it's reasonable to look on the failure to suppress below 07 as a failure of the intent of the therapy. And so the idea, we know that some drugs in some patients seem to be more effective at testosterone suppression than others. So I would take a patient, for example, on Zolodex or Eligard and switch them to uh, one of the drugs that they hadn't had before and with regular measurement of testosterone, see if they're adequately suppressed or, or switch to uh, degorelix or firmagon. But the idea is to find an agent that induces adequate suppression if they're on one that does not. And why do these drugs have, uh, why are some more effective than others? There's probably a number of reasons. It may have to do with absorption. Some patients may not absorb sub-Q as well as they do IM. It may be the formulation. It may be antibodies. There's a number of reasons. Frankly, I don't think it really matters because we have a number of uh, alternative drugs that can be used.
4: I think the, the group of experts made a tremendous work, but uh, there is something which is, uh, in my view, very important. Um, and I'm not sure everybody understands that uh, these uh, patients, are, we are talking of uh, uh, resistance, castration, prostate cancer, and metastatic prostate cancer. This probably doesn't apply to localized prostate cancer. We have, uh, we have in Quebec, uh, two phase three randomized study for localized prostate cancer, roughly 600 patients for intermediate risk and 600 for high risk prostate cancer. And <clears throat> we, we ask the database to see if uh, there is a difference, if we give six, 18, 36 months of uh, androgen deprivation therapy, if there is a difference in outcomes. And for localized prostate cancer, below 1.7 nanomol per liter, we didn't find any difference. If you compare 0.7 to 1.7 group and less than 0.7. So we didn't find any difference in outcomes. Biochemical failure, um, <clears throat> prostate uh, progression, death, uh, metastasis. And uh, for these reasons, for localized prostate cancer, I don't think it is really necessary to get uh, surgical castration level less than 0.7. We we put some cautions because we got this uh, medical castration below 1.7 for more than 90% of the patients and we have a small group of patients with localized prostate cancer, when at the end of ADT, and you are talking of prospective data about 800 patients, for at the end of ADT, if you have a breakthrough, if you have testosterone level above 1.7, then you have to be very careful with these patients. We don't have recommendations yet, but you have to follow these patients more closely. For metastatic and resistance castration prostate cancer, it's a must. And I think the Canadian group made a very good work. It's a must to get uh, castration level. The, there is no biggest challenge, you know, this, uh, uh, we have to implement this in our clinics for sure. And uh, for example, even uh, we are working, uh, With our colleagues we have these tumor boards which are very important to treat these patients and uh, our oncologists are aware of that and uh, even if uh, they have this problem they they will bring uh, these patients for discussion. Uh, I have something to say is about maybe orchiectomy. In my view orchiectomy is not used um, so often, you see, uh, most of these patients are under uh, ADT, long term ADT. And even if we look at the clinical trials uh, and see the proportion of patients who, who have long term ADT in the metastatic sitting or in the castration resistant sitting, or some patients with uh, a biochemical failure. Uh, very it's not so often that they are offered orchiectomy and it's it's also in my practice Uh, probably we have some responsibility not to bring uh, the the possibility of orchiectomy for these patients and uh, we have probably to to give that option more systematically to our patients
5: so the guideline of zero point seven for testosterone, although it's a new uh, guideline based on the COA guideline, but the data is still uh, not as uh, robust as we uh, we um, uh, want, to, want it to be. Um, the most recent data that comes in from uh, Larry Klotz from the PR seven um, retrospective analysis, uh, it does show that patients who have a testosterone um, less than 0.7 do better compared to ones above 0.7, but again, there is um, the question is is there if the PSA is less than 0, uh, 0.7 or 1 or 1.1? Although most indications are towards less than 0.7, uh, we yet to make uh, a conclusion that less than 1 is an important value or is really less than 0.7. There is no data such for that. So how do I implement this in my practice? Uh, If a PC is well-controlled and below, uh, for example, undetectable 0.1, and the testosterone is not uh, above 1 or 1.1, I do not change anything. On the other hand, if the testosterone is whatever the value is, and the PC is not well-controlled, then I might uh, change. And for example, if a patient has a testosterone of uh, 1. 1.4, 1. 1.5, and PC is not well-controlled, then uh, I will change uh, either to a different LHRH agonist or I might even go to an antagonist. But everything is so valuable. Uh, at my practice, I think I still use a value of 1 to 1.1 1. 1 to act on testosterone, not uh, below that. Consistently to achieve a testosterone less than uh, 0.7, if you look at all LHRH agonists, there's a percentage of the patients who persistently will have testosterone above 0. 0.7. So it, it, The data is variable. There's some uh, between 20 to 25% of the patient will have above 0. 0.7. Would that indicate to replace every patient above that value, which is probably... Uh, not optimistic. And as we look at the data above 1.1, then that is much more realistic and the percentage drops to about 5-10%. to So I think the challenge is that we cannot have a high percentage of the patient less than 0.7 if we look at all LHRH agonists. So changing everybody whose PC is well-controlled if the testosterone is between 0.7 to 1.1. Probably there's a challenge, and would we change anything at that level? The question to be answered. But I personally, at present time, haven't adopted for patients who have a testosterone less than one or 1.1 and PSA well controlled. The patient, if a patient has a recurrent disease compared to metastatic disease, they're two different patient population, and uh, if a patient has a PSA that is really less than 0.1 undetectable and the Testosterone is at 0.8, 0.9. Honestly, I will not do anything. If, on the other hand, if the testosterone is higher in the PCA, let's say the testosterone is uh, 1.1, 1.2, and PCA is not reaching uh, the undetectable level, then yes, I would probably change the LHRH agents to see if that is the reason why the, the, the PCA is not dropping to undetectable values, or is uh, similarly, testosterone doesn't go less than 0.7, or it is. Uh, the disease itself. So, and, and again, um, that will be patient-dependent. And if the PCA is well-controlled and the testosterone is not really uh, uh, high above one, 1.1, I will not change the LHR le- agonist to another uh, different type or even add antagonists.
6: So, since we've uh, known that uh, testosterone nadir is an important factor in considering patients on ADT and that it leads to better outcomes the lower the testosterone, we've made an active effort to be, one, measuring testosterone levels, and two, trying to make sure that testosterone measured in our center is reliable to make sure that when patients don't have PS- uh, testosterone below 0.7, that we might need to consider changing the form of LHRH therapy or at least rechecking in a, in a reasonably short amount of time because that is uh, what we've been doing over the last uh, few years when we've realized that testosterone is below 07 lead to better outcome. So the challenge in reaching that goal that we think is uh, is what we should do is, uh, one, making sure that our labs are able to report low testosterone levels, make sure that they are reliable. So we've actively pursued with our biochemistry department to make sure that our tests are reliable. We've tried to have them validated with other forms of measurement since we use uh, an immunoassay and uh, we're actively checking that our testosterone levels are reliable. And now we are convinced that they are very reliable. And so we rely on the levels that we get to decide on whether or not to maintain the same form of LHRH therapy. Fortunately, most the vast majority of our patients are below 0.7 and that's very reassuring in my practice, if patients are above 0.7, we look at the clinical situation. So if a patient is just a rising PSA, doesn't have any evidence of metastases, uh, we have the luxury of being able to change the form of LHRH therapy. Or in some cases, if we do that and it doesn't seem to lower the testosterone level, we'll try to optimize by adding an antiandrogen. Rarely, but we do discuss it with the patient, is to go on to a surgical castration to try to really make sure that we are getting the very best testosterone control possible. In the case of a metastatic patient, if testosterone is not below 0.7, but the patient is progressing, there's a certain amount of urgency to go on to subsequent therapy uh, if PSA is rising, if metastases are progressing. And in that situation, we will go straight to treating metastatic CRPC since there's a sense of urgency in intervening in those patients.
7: So the issue of low testosterone levels has always sort of been looming over the heads of urologists and radiation oncologists. There's a lot of retrospective uh, evidence and some very good solid evidence from uh, the PR7 trial that low testosterone levels are associated with improved cancer control and ultimately time to CRPC and hopefully survival. Um, As a result, I think it behooves us all to be sure that our patients that are given androgen deprivation therapies are as castrate as they can be. A good threshold is 0.7 or lower based on uh, contemporary evidence. In my clinical practice, I've been doing this already from the get-go. So for the last 12, 13 years, in every single patient who's undergoing ADT, uh, their testosterone levels are measured prior to each and every visit. So I've had the opportunity not only to practice this, but really also the opportunity to see what happens across the board when patients are receiving uh, androgen deprivation therapies with respect to testosterone suppression. So has that been difficult? Um, There has been challenges in some some instances where you fail to achieve the target that you wish to achieve. Does it happen frequently? Not terribly frequently. If if your target is over 1.7, perhaps in clinical practice, that amounts to maybe three to 5% of my patients. Now, when we lower that threshold to a much more stringent 0.7 nanomoles per liter threshold, That's a different game, and so now we're talking about rates as high as 25% not achieving that that endpoint. And so that's the challenge in clinical practice. What do you do with those patients uh, that don't achieve what you want them to achieve? Practically speaking, we usually tend to switch to another agent, but not until we have verified at least two or three times that that particular um, inadequate reading of testosterone was not a lab error. So practically, that's probably the biggest challenge. What do you do when the PSA is well controlled, but the testosterone level is not as castrate as you'd like it to be? So the biggest challenge really to achieving this goal is the fact that we're giving the same drugs with the same doses to the same patients, and yet we see a variety of different outcomes. In general, about 75% of our patients are going to get to a T level of below 0.7 nanomoles per liter, which is kind of where you want them to be. Uh, however, 25% don't. So they're either over 0.7 or frankly over 1.7. Uh, and I think that knowing how to deal with that inadequacy of castration is not a simple answer. Uh, if you add an anti like biclutamide, it's difficult to measure its response simply because we can't Uh, check PSA levels if the PSA wasn't abnormal or inadequately suppressed. So what you're looking for is testosterone suppression. That can't be achieved by adding additional antiandrogens. So in practice, what I do in my my patients is I switch to a different LHRH agonist, and failing that, I consider antagonists. Um, That's the challenge. So inadequacy of castration uh, through medical means, as we've already outlined, does occur in a proportion of patients. Uh, A good estimate is about 25% are going to be over 0.7. How does one deal with this? I think it's an individualized approach. Obviously, it's important that the patient be as castrate as possible. But I think the relative urgency of how we deal with it depends on the context of the patient. If a patient is still castrate-sensitive and responding to therapy in their PSAs, undetectable, then I have to have a one-on-one discussion with a patient that you know, the testosterone level is not as castrated as it should be. And while today it's not making a difference in their PSA, evidence would suggest that their time to castration resistance will be shorter. And as such, earlier intervention in lowering testosterone would be of benefit. But that entails either trying another agent, another ag- agonist, or perhaps an antagonist. And if we try any of these maneuvers and we still don't get a lowered testosterone level, then you have to have a really fir- another discussion with a patient as to whether or not we should consider surgical orchiectomy. Now that's a bit of a leap. To do a bilateral orchiectomy to obtain castration and that's i think where there's an art to the science of medicine where you have to really sit down with that patient and say what is this patient's individual risk or probability of progression to crpc if the patient that is on adt at that point is a patient who has metastases has gleason 8 9 disease is essentially a bad actor that is a patient in whom i'm going to want very deep and tight testosterone control On the other hand, if I have a patient who's got disease that's favorable for the most part, uh, is non-metastatic, there's no immediate threat of progression to CRPC, I may accept a testosterone level of 0.8 or 0.9 without radical changes, or certainly a bilateral orchiectomy. So there certainly has to be some individualization of treatment to the patient, but the overarching goal here is if the intent is to provide castration then you should provide castration. And when we do understand and know that a T-level below 0.7 ultimately is superior to an inadequate T-level, that should always be the goal, but there's flexibility around it depending on the patient profile. There is one additional point that I think is certainly worthy of mention. And that is, again, goes back to the patient with the inadequate testosterone suppression. And the key there is if the patient is castration resistant and in particular, if they are metastatic and castration resistant, I do not spend too much time or effort in trying to lower T from, for example, 1.1 to less than 0.7 if the threat here now is metastatic, castration resistant prostate cancer, where really the goal here has to be rapidly exposing that patient to a drug with an overall survival benefit that's been proven. And so, in essence, if you have a patient in whom you're considering uh, therapy with ARATS or docetaxel because they have progressive MCRPC but whose T levels may be 1.1, is it of any sense whatsoever to spend the next three months trying to lower the T from 1.1 to 0.6 when they have uh, when the underlying disease is metastatic CRPC? And my answer to that is absolutely not. And those patients should be exposed to therapies that have overall survival Improvement proven in clinical trials. So that's the exception. And I think anytime we talk about recurrent patients or metastatic patients, we should stop and specify are we talking castration sensitive, castration naive, or castration resistant? As the importance of testosterone suppression at these levels becomes um, less of an issue if you have castration resistant disease.